When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hard to believe we're already in the middle of the week, but it's Wednesday and we're getting closer and closer to divisional weekend action. Welcome into another postseason preview edition of the Strictly Stripes podcast. Muhammad Ahmad back at it with you after a day off with Mike Nislik. Andrew Gillis will join us back tomorrow. And just to give you some injury updates as we've been following the Bengals offensive line, no Jonah Williams or Alex Kappa at practice on Wednesday. Neither of them practice. Um, again, as we mentioned, Zach Taylor said they are week to week. He didn't have any uh, update on either of them. So we're going to see how the rest of the uh, week plays out. But wouldn't be shocked if neither of them uh, end up playing on Sunday, which leads to the discussion of Jackson Carmen, who we've talked about since Sunday night's game. He will probably start at left tackle. If indeed Jonah Williams is not good to go, Max Sharping and Hakeem Adeniji will stay on that right side. Sharping filling in for, uh, of course, Kappa. No Cons for the rest of the playoffs. So if what we're seeing holds true, this is what the Bengals' estimated offensive line would look at. Look like, rather. You'd have Jackson Carmen at left tackle, a rookie right next to him at left guard, Cordell Voson. You'll have Ted Karras, the veteran, the demeanor hound at center. And again, we mentioned Sharping at right guard and then Hakeem Adeniji at right tackle. As far as last year goes, the only person on that line who played last year would be Adeniji, but he only started the last nine games of the year, and he didn't start a game until uh, Collins went out after the New England game. So you have a rookie, you have one person from last year, you have uh, two backups, and then you have one veteran. Um, and not to make this sound bleak, but you have to consider that, again, people would have concerns because Joe Burrow was sacked 19 times in the playoffs last year, four times against Buffalo last week. That's only the fourth time this year he was sacked three or more times. And the other three games they lost, those other three games where he had three or more sacks, the Bengals lost those games to the Steelers, to the Browns, to the Cowboys. So... You have the bad side of it, but I think there's also a case to be made that Burrow's throwing the ball quicker. Burrow's quicker with his feet. Um, not that he wasn't good last year. He's definitely gotten better this year. But, Mike, when you kind of weigh the good and the bad, uh, how much do you kind of factor Joe Burrow's growth into this? And, you know, are we really just over-projecting the offensive line? Is it really not going to be maybe as bad as some people think it's going to be? Well, it's hard to say. Um, you know, the um, coaching staff seems pretty confident, and they were uh, happy, at least with what they've said, you know, with kind of the performance. Um, looking at um, Pro Football Focus, they, they allowed 10 uh, pressures, uh, four sacks, and five quarterback hurries. The um, the, the biggest culprit was Hakeem Adeniji. He allowed three. Uh, they gave him a pass-blocking uh, grade. Of twenty five point nine, uh, which matches some of his performance in the in the playoffs last year. Um, 
I mean, I, I think saying it's going to be a struggle, I, I, I think would be fair. I mean, I, will it cause them to lose the game? Is, is that maybe a step too far? I don't know, but I mean, I think it's going to, they're going to have to, you know, make changes. Um, and you mentioned, you know, the, the development of Joe Burrow, I think th- sort of, you know, obviously helps that. And, and they talked a lot of bit about that today, how much that makes a difference and how it makes the comparison to last year kind of, um, unfair. So I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll see. And, how much Buffalo wants to uh, test them with blitzes, what their strategy is, um, you know, kind of the the counterpoint to that. Um, you know, obviously uh, Baltimore has, you know, um, you know, sent some pressure, um, but, uh, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see how Buffalo kind of, you know, with the week to prepare what they decide to do, how do they decide to approach it. You know, with Sean McDermott and the way the Bills dial up their defense, it's still very much a conservative kind of scheme. I was talking about this with Andrew earlier today in the media room, and I think others would agree. I mean, Buffalo is one of only three teams in the NFL with both a top 10 offense and a top 10 defense. The only other two teams, the Eagles and the 49ers, who are also both still alive. They're going to play their respective games this weekend, and there's a good chance we could see both of them playing uh, in the NFC Championship for the right to go to the Super Bowl. So, like, that shows you right there, you know, it's not cliche. Like, having those kind of teams is what wins championships. Like, yeah, they say defense wins championships, but so does offense. But since we're talking defense, like I said with Buffalo, I think they're going to really try to test Burrow. They're going to try to test the offensive line. Um their pass rush grade, according to Pro Football Focus, 78, which is the sixth best among all teams uh, in the NFL, according to Pro Football Focus. But here's kind of the flip side to that. Because like you said, coaches, including uh, offensive coordinator Brian Callahan, talked about Burrow's development and Burrow's progression, uh, not just from last year, but even his rookie year. Um, he is the third best in qualifying pressure among all quarterbacks, also according to PFF. But here's the, the good stat that I think should give people a sigh of relief. He has the second fastest throwing time among all quarterbacks, 2.49 seconds. The only one ahead of him, Tom Brady, who is Tom Brady, so there's no need to get into that. Um, So again, you're going to have a quarterback who's a lot quicker with his feet, who's a lot quicker with his hands, but you also have a Buffalo pass rush, which, and I don't like to draw parallels because obviously, you know, the Bills and Titans are two different teams, but when you think about the Titans last year, which was when Burrow got the most sacks in the playoffs, nine uh, sacks to be exact. I mean, was and still is a good pass rush, but Buffalo's just different. Like, you know, it's funny. Zach Taylor was saying um, when he was the offensive coordinator at Cincinnati, the the Bearcats, rather, he was actually here at one point, for those who don't know, um, he saw Ed Oliver, Bill's defensive tackle, when he played for Houston. And I think that's actually a guy who gets slept on a little bit. I know they don't have Vaughn Miller, but we talked about it on the podcast before that Monday night game. Shaq Lawson is not to be slept on. The linebacking duo of Milano, Matt Milano and Tremaine Edmonds. Um, I don't know if it's as good as Levante David and Devin White. There's an argument to be made that they're a top five uh, linebacker duo. So if you're Burrow, like you're confident, obviously, because he's Mr. You know, Mr. Joe Shiesty, as people call him. You can throw the ball. You can move your legs really well. Do you do anything any differently? I know the coach has said the game plan doesn't really change from a blocking point of view, but does anything change for Burrow? Does anything stay the same? Going in and game planning, I mean, it'll just be what they see kind of, I think, how they feel they want to take advantage of Buffalo. I mean, they'll have to make adjustments based on how Buffalo plays. With I, I still think, I said this, I think, uh, earlier this week, that um, you know, if Buffalo can just rush four um, and drop more guys into coverage, 
I think that uh, would be the way to win. I, I'd worry, um, you know, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, you know, a, a bust or, or they get loose down the field. Those explosive plays are a way to sort of get, um, you know, ignite this offense. And I would not want to give those up. And I think um, when you blitz and, you know, based on the kind of what you were saying about Burrow delivering the ball, um, he's gotten so good um, at dealing with pressure um, and just extending that play for a second with his feet or just knowing how to read the defense that um, you really run the risk. Uh, if you put pressure on that secondary that uh, I think, you know, Joe Burrow can pick that, pick those, find those holes, you know, it, it might be more boomer bust and maybe they're okay. Um, Cause they, you know, I think it's a team where uh, Buffalo will feel comfortable in a shootout. Um, so it's like, if you, you know, uh, if you could force a turnover or you score, or you let them score a touchdown and we'll answer either way. Maybe it's like that. I don't know. I, I think it'll be interesting to see, like I said, um, how they decide to approach that. Do they, you know, go all out and try to really wreck the game um, and leave themselves open to some of those bigger plays? Or do they play a little more conservatively? And, you know, they've got the, you know, they've invested so much into that defensive front, on um, that front four, you know, multiple, uh, you know, first and second round picks uh, the last three or four years that I mean, it should be a group capable of uh, getting there to the quarterback without without help. Yeah, I mean, like you said, Oliver's one of them. Like Dak Taylor mentioned, Shaq Lawson was a first-round pick even as far back as 2016. Edmonds, same thing. He was a first-round pick. Uh, so, yeah, like they've invested a lot of stock either by drafting or trading uh, for those guys in the last uh, four to six years. So it's it's going to be a challenge. Um, I, I don't know that I want to say it's going to be the Bengals' toughest front they faced because, obviously, I mean, you're dealing with Dallas, who they faced in, like, only the second week of the year. I think Pittsburgh and Cleveland with – what they have with TJ Watt and Miles Garrett, like those are always going to be tough matchups. They always have been. And I think nothing gets Burrow. They always will be not because of him. They're just that good, which is why I say, I think if, you know, even if Burrow gets sacked, say three plus times, which three is kind of that magic number of, you know, like we said, if he's been sacked three times or more in a game, the Bengals have lost three of those games, except last week's game against Baltimore because of, uh, I don't know. I'm going to talk with Andrew more about this, but what do you want to call it? The the rumble in the jungle? Uh, the Sam Hubbard's play. I don't know. I'm still thinking of nicknames. We can debate that later in the podcast. But if it wasn't for that, you run the risk of, oh, well, he got sacked three-plus times, like those other three games. Now what? Um, and so you run the real possibility of, like, if he gets sacked more than three times, it's not like that's it. 3-0, and or they're 0-3 with three-plus sacks. Game over. It's not quite that simple. I mean, he got sacked nine times, seven times against the Rams. Well, they lost to the Rams, but nine times against the Titans and one. But like you said, it's it's hard to say if just giving up that many sacks is going to lose the game Like because there's so much you have to consider. Like We'll talk more about this later, but Josh Allen hasn't really been the best with the ball, either holding on to it or throwing it. Um, I don't think Stephon Diggs has been particularly explosive since December. I would say much of the same for... Gabe Davis, the number two wide receiver in Buffalo. So, like, not that they're not good, and I want to actually debate that later, but, you know, I don't think that offense – I'd say vanilla is a compliment. Like, that's really what they looked like against Miami. So, um, I'd like to see how that fares against Cincinnati, who I know the Dolphins have an interesting defense compared to the Bengals. But, I mean, yeah, like, it's, it's just so hard to say, oh, that's it, game over, he got hit. But in the grand scheme of things, I think kind of an interesting point of discussion is Jackson Carmen because he's got this very kind of polarizing image because on the one hand, you know, he was this highly touted second round pick out of Clemson. He played with T. Higgins um, at Clemson. So like he 
knows a thing or two about playing with good guys. He, he backed up Trevor Lawrence, who has played a lot better in Jacksonville the last couple of weeks. So he showed really good prowess in college. And then he comes to Cincinnati last year and kind of has a shaky year, not quite, you know, what they were expecting. And then he doesn't do well in training camp. And at this point, he just doesn't really uh, make any kind of starting or backup role. He's pretty much been inactive all year. And then now you have to elevate him because of all those injuries we mentioned. Um, we saw that last week. We're going to see it again this week. And we might even see Isaiah Prince elevated just for extra depth because you might as well. But, you know, maybe this is a broader point of view. But what does it say that, you know, you have this guy who's so highly touted who I don't know if bust is the right word because I think maybe that's too early to say, but is the gap between just playing good in college and playing good in the NFL that wide? Because I think sometimes I forget, like, you got guys who win the Heisman, you got guys who win the Boletnikoff, and then they go to the NFL, and it's just like, what happened to this guy? Do you think Carmen might have just fallen off in some way, or what do you think the deal is with him? Because it, it, I think he's kind of a, a tricky kind of player to assess when it comes to his drop-off. Well, I mean, I think there's a couple things. Obviously, the expectations were higher as, you know, from coming from Clemson and being a second round pick. Um, but, uh, he goes from tackle to guard, now back to tackle. I mean, each time you switch positions, it's not easy. Um, I mean, there are things to learn and unlearn. And, um, you know, for a guy that's uh, at the start of his career, um, that, that can be difficult. And then you, you know, factor in, like I said, playing with those expectations, um, can take a toll on a player. Not everybody handles it, um, the same and it, and not everybody develops the same. And, and you know, as much as he might have been a highly touted player, out of college, uh, it's not a, like a one-to-one transition. That doesn't always guarantee success, obviously. Um, and there's no sort of one um, easy path. Like guys take longer. Some guys take longer to develop, regardless of if they're, uh, you know, high draft picks. Um, you know, obviously he's in a spot where, um, you know, they need what they 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 were hoping to have him develop a, a little more quickly, just because, um, you know, after last year. Um, they try to, you know, want to reboot on the offensive line and hope you hope a guy that's a second round pick factors into it. Um, he doesn't. Um, but now obviously he'll be called on and, and this will be, you know, I, I, if, if it's just one game or if it's a couple games, um, this could factor into, you know, the trajectory of his career because like you said, he's been inactive all season. Now he's got a chance to prove. Um, you know, you talk about uh, reps on air or, you know, whatever, practice reps and all those have accumulated now. And then um, you've got to perform. Uh, and if he doesn't, I think that, um, you know, that, that, that'll lead to some question marks. And I, and I think that's fair because, you know, he's gotten time to sort of uh, learn behind the scenes, behind some talented veterans that they brought in. And now it's his time to sort of take all that and, and try to show that, um, you know, he can take it to the next level. You know, it's, it's and really, that's a good point, Mike, because, I mean, it's not even just Carmen. I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, me, you, and Andrew, but, you know, Jonah Williams, they signed his fifth-year option uh, from his rookie deal, which was back to 2019, because he was the first-ever player drafted in the Zach Taylor era. Um, but even he's kind of had some question marks. I think he's been better this year compared to before, but... Um, kind of like Carmen, although obviously they've still started with Williams and they've rolled with him and they've kept him from last year. I still don't know that, like you said, he's met those quote unquote first round pick coming out of Alabama expectations. So, you know, we'll see next year if, um, he defies everything he's done the last four years and, you know, learns from whatever he's done mistake wise. And of course he's been banged up right now as we're talking about him, but you know, maybe he proves us wrong next year or otherwise maybe after next year, the Bengals kind of have to move on, which is why it'd be interesting to see, like, do they draft a tackle 
um, in the draft next year because of the doubts on Carmen and the potential doubts on uh, Jonah Williams. And then, I mean, you know, with Lyle Collins, like he's getting up there in age, you know, how much can you get out of him, especially since he's injured? I think talking about this and talking about the expectations on Carmen and uh, Williams is going to kind of get people to think about the off season of, you know, how longer are they going to stick with them beyond next year or even within next year? And so it's going to make you question, do you draft another one? Do you kind of wait another year and then draft and focus on fixing secondary? I'm getting way too ahead of myself. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to compare and contrast the Bills and Bengals receiving duos. And plus, we're going to get into a little trash talk. We'll hear exactly what I'm talking about when we come back on the Strictly Stripes podcast. And thanks for staying with us on the Strictly Stripes podcast. So, you know, there's always a bunch of position debates across the NFL because why not, right? Um, and I think when you go into this game, I think an interesting point of debate is, you know, you have the receiving duo of Jamar Chase and T. Higgins. You could also expand it to the trio, including Tyler Boyd. But if we're being, you know, kind of narrow, you have Chase and Higgins. And then on the other side for Buffalo, uh, you have Gabe Davis and Stephon Diggs, who, you know, Diggs, at one point, he was the leading receiver in the league. Uh, he was kind of up there with Tyreek Hill. Gabe Davis has just been kind of a tried-and-true number two receiver. Stats are very similar. So, uh, obviously, Diggs is the leading receiver for Buffalo. 108 catches, 11 touchdowns, over 1,400 yards. As for Chase, 87 catches, 1,046 yards, 9 touchdowns. But the thing is, of course, people know Jamar Chase missed four games. I think if he didn't miss those four games to a hip injury, he'd be well over Diggs' stats. I think he'd have at least 115 catches, and I think he'd have probably about the same receiving yards as uh, Diggs and the same amount of touchdowns because there's only two touchdowns apart. So, I mean, just plain and simple, is the duo of Jamar Chase and T. Higgins better than Gabe Davis and Stephon Diggs? I think they are. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I, but, you know, I think – yeah, it's hard to separate Diggs and, and Jamar Chase. I mean, I think if you were to pick, you know, the top five receivers, it'd be what them two, Tariq Hill and Justin Jefferson in that conversation, you know, um, and probably people would have a different order. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that I, I think both teams are happy with the weapons they have. Um, certainly. Um, and Jamar Chase has proven to be, um, you know, just an all around superstar. Uh, and you know, Joe Burrow obviously, uh, gets much of the publicity and he drives this team. But I mean, you, you can't understate, I think, uh, the impact Jamar Chase has on this offense. Uh, the, um, you know, the versatility he has, you know, playing all positions is something that I think just you kind of, you know, people gloss over, but that's not really something that coaches are comfortable doing with, you know, just every guy out there. So, um, and then just, you know, his physical, uh, athletic attributes are sort of just off the charts where, um, you know, you can't replicate him. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that, um, that duo is, pr- is pretty, pretty darn good. So to kind of narrow that down. So I think you agree they're both good duos, but if we're talking digs and chase, if you have to pick between the two, who would you pick and why? Yeah. I mean, I, I like I said, I, I, I still think, um, I'd pick, I'd give the edge to Jamar Chase and T. Higgins in terms, and I, I don't know, like, <laughs> maybe it's just that I, you know, I've seen them more. Um, so you're obviously, uh, more familiar with what they can do, but I think Jamar Chase with, um, you know, being just in his second year and T. Higgins, uh, what is his 
third year, fourth year. Um, third year. You know, they're just so so young that um, I think both of them still have the uh, room to grow. And and you know, I think there's something to be said right now. Um, having that uh, trifecta to you know, and you got to throw in Tyler, Tyler Boyd, um, you know, stacking those years all together, um, I think makes this group even more dangerous because they're so uh, used to you know situational awareness is so good. They're comfortable, you know, being comfortable with Joe Burrow and, and knowing his, him in and out. And Jamar goes back with them even further. I think that makes a difference. I think that really um, allows the coaching staff to do some things that, you know, they might not otherwise want um, be comfortable with doing, um, you know, if they had a guy that they just signed off the street. And I think if we're talking about specifically the one-on-one between Chase and Diggs is that, you know, Chase is clearly younger. Um, not that Diggs is old, but he's already, I think, into his fifth or sixth season now because, you know, he was with the Vikings before that, and that's how he became famous was that Minneapolis miracle. Minnesota miracle, whatever people call it. But, um, you know, with Chase, it's just like Brian Callahan kind of summed up what I want to say. And that's that you can watch Jamar Chase's explosiveness and his speed and his agility on tape. And if you're a defensive back or a cornerback who's on the field and you're actually seeing that in person, there is such a disconnect and such a contrast because it's almost like, like the way Callahan said it, it's like surprising at first, like, when you actually play against him and you see like, Oh my God, this guy's like a rocket. Like he can take off. Like he's that fast. I know we haven't seen him get those like home run balls. Like he got last year because he's seen more clouded looks, which I think is actually a testament to how much better he is, is that he's facing tougher coverage and he's still breaking through most of it, especially since that Baltimore loss where he kind of had his worst game of the year. And so, you know, like when he gets those intermediate routes, those checkdowns that Joe Burrow talked about, which that's going to be a big thing going back to what we can expect. Like I think Burrow even said himself, yeah, there's going to be a lot of checkdowns and a lot of intermediate passes. And the good thing is if you get those chase, he just makes a quick cut, turns around, makes a spin move, and either he's gone or he's going to get like a good chunk of yak, a good hefty chunk of yak. And so, you know, with Diggs – Again, he is fast. I just don't know if he's as fast. He's fast enough to be one of the best in the league. I think he's definitely top five. Um, he's actually a little bit taller than Jamar Chase, so he has a little bit of extra reach that maybe Chase doesn't have because Chase is six. I think Diggs is six two height wise. Um, you know, as far as Gabe Davis and T Higgins, I think the big difference is just height. I mean, T Higgins is almost like what six five. Not like Megatron, but he's up there. And then, you know, Gabe Davis, I think he's really good at keeping his feet in bounds. Like, he's good at making those sideline catches. I think that's actually what saved them against the Dolphins was the fact that, like, he made good catches in the end zone with two feet down before going out. So, not that Higgins can't do that. They both can. I just think with Higgins, it's simply height. Um, they were both kind of mid-round picks, too, so they have that in common. But, yeah, I just think, you know, like you said, they're they're both great duos. I think you could expand it and say the Bills have a good trio. Isaiah McKenzie, um, I saw him play in week one against L.A., and I think he's been kind of a sleeper. I don't know if he's like Tyler Boyd. I think Tyler Boyd's got the veteran talent, but McKenzie's definitely not a bad receiver to have on any team as a two or three. So I definitely want to see kind of who outdoes the other. And, of course, you have to consider, like, they have different quarterbacks going to them. You have Josh Allen, who's like a tight end, who can bulldoze anybody. And you have Joe Burrow who, you know, yeah, he's not like a bulldozer, but he's crafty. He's shysty with his feet. That's why he's Joe shysty. Um, so is Allen. I think, you know, maybe that's where you, there's the debate that comes back up of, oh, who's quicker, who's faster. I don't think it's about who's quicker or faster. I just think Burrow's the stronger guy who will – no, Allen is the stronger guy who can bulldoze you. 
Burrow's just going to try to get away from you until you try to bring him down. So, so much to compare. Just a point of correction. Stefan Diggs and Jamar Chase are both listed at six feet. And Jamar actually had the better – but Jamar uh, had the better – uh, forty time at the combines, uh, you know, separate combines. But uh, Jamar ran a four point three eight. It looks yeah. like, and uh, Diggs ran a four point four six. That sounds about right. I knew Jamar ran under a four point four, which that's freaky fast. But where did you see the height? Because I could have sworn Pro Football Reference said Diggs was six one or six two. That's crazy. Did you where Where did you see his height at specifically? I'm, I'm pulling it up. Hold on. So I was going to say, yeah, sometimes one website will say one thing, one will say the other. But the point is, the we Buffalo both agree that official, official website lists them at six feet. So, Ah, well, you would, you would think they'd give them the extra inches, but I guess not. Interesting. Well, speaking of extras, I think, you know, the, the nice thing about games like this is you get extracurricular activity, including some pregame trash talk. But here's the thing, though. There's so much love between the Bills and Bengals, that I don't think you're going to hear any trash talk between one team and the other. But we have some trash talk from Joe Mixon, but not about the Bills. Nothing to do with the Bills. We've heard Joe Mixon talk about, quote-unquote, we're the big dogs in the AFC. We've seen him flip the coin. We've seen him uh, try to challenge Roger Goodell about who's going to pay for the fine. And now he's griping with the league over the fact that they have a pre-sale over – what could be a neutral site AFC championship game in Atlanta. So what happened was the league set up a pre-sale for Bills season ticket holders and Chiefs season ticket holders. Uh, it was at Wednesday. We're taping this Wednesday night. This was Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Season ticket holders of those teams could buy tickets, assuming the Bills and Chiefs play in Atlanta in a neutral site AFC championship game. Well, someone asked Joe Mixon about it because supposedly it's been brought up in team meetings, and he said point blank, it's disrespectful along with some other things I can't repeat on this podcast. but um, So kind of two things I think that are interesting. The first thing is, I don't know that it's meant to be an insult. I think it's just more so the fact that like the NFL is just logistically laying it out. Because here's the thing, only season ticket holders were eligible to buy tickets. Everyone else, like you and I, for example, if we were random fans, we couldn't get those tickets until 9 a.m. Monday Eastern time. So, like, it's not like, oh, everyone can get whatever they want. This is just for the fan bases of those teams. Um, I don't think it was meant to be that personal, but he definitely took it personal. Uh, and then the other interesting thing is it's good to have a, a captain and a leader who's vocal and confident. But I think it's also – this is not a knock on him, but it's interesting when you consider he hasn't really backed that up because he's averaged just about three and a half yards per carry – his last four games, the Ravens game was no different. He pretty much had an average performance like he's had since December. So I want to ask you about this because you've talked to Joe Mixer as much as I have. You've written about him more than I have. What do you make of someone like that? Because I think if it's Jamar Chase, like you welcome it because he's mostly going to back it up on the field. Burrow will usually back it up on the field. Nixon hasn't really backed it up. Does you know? Speaking of being the big dog. Does he really have a dog in this kind of a fight, or is he just overprojecting? Well, I think first of all, the issue at hand is uh, logistical. Like you think you mentioned that they have to do it separately because they're offering two waves of t- tickets. They need to know how many tickets they have available uh, once the season ticket holders are done claiming them to know how many they have for the public. 
So, I mean, I don't think it's like, a, I don't think there's a there there, but it's not surprising that the Bengals are using it because they have a chip on their shoulder from a lot of stuff that's happened since last year. And the playoff thing, uh, the way that the league operated that um, was obviously something they were unhappy about. And this is an extension of that. So I'm not surprised they're saying like, like they, they're taking it personally, uh, however big or small their beef is or however legitimate. Um, that said, in terms of Mixon as the one as the spokesperson, yeah, I think when you build what equity, um, it's 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 your you know he's respected in that locker room. He's been through the battles. Uh, whether he's having a successful season or not, it's like Michael Thomas, uh, the safety, is a captain. Um, he doesn't play much. He only plays on special teams, uh, but he has a voice in that locker room, and so and a respected voice. So it's it's not about sort of like, what have you done for me this moment? Like, just because he had 30 yards uh, on Sunday doesn't make his uh, opinion or criticism or concerns any less valid. Um, you know, he's not a rookie that does that. Like, Cam Taylor Britt probably doesn't have the platform yet to start doing that and have his sure. teammates back him up. Uh, Joe Mixon absolutely does. That's fair. Like, you make a point there. And this is not take away from Nixon's leadership. I think he's – there's a reason why he's a well-respected leader. Like – he, he had to earn that respect, and I think he rightfully did earn that respect. He's, he's part of the core of that team. He's been there longer than most people on that team. Like The only person who's been there longer than him are Tyler Boyd and Kevin Huber and Clark Harris. Like He's been there that long. He's in his sixth season. And I don't say this to mock him by any means. Um, and that's, again, I think there's a debate to be had on his numbers because clearly, I mean, that's another point. It's like you could also say, well, it's not his fault, you know, Brian Callahan said, we're just going to throw the ball more. And it's not take away from Joe Mixon or from Samaj P. Ryan. Um, doesn't take away from either of them. It's just kind of how they run their offense. You know, and again, like I kind of, and, and to back up Mixon, because I don't want to like say this to vindicate against him. Like that first drive, he did great. Like he got like a two first downs on that drive, one with a catch, one with a run. So from a DVOA standpoint, he's actually not that bad. Even if the numbers say otherwise, I think he's actually, he's one of the better running backs to get first downs. And I also think he's, again, one of the best red zone running backs in the league. So this is not a criticism or an attack on Joe Mixon. I just think people, I make the case for people who hear that and say, well, why is Joe Mixon, you know, you know, flexing his war chest? Like, what has he done the last four games? But I also say, well, he's still one of the better pass catching running backs, great red zone running back, can get first, get the first downs where need be. So um, it was just interesting, but I want to kind of, wrap up and expand on this. I mean, like we've heard him say that we remember when Jamar Chase was talking uh, before the chiefs game in December, he pretty much called Justin Reed tuna in a can. So you get your trash talk here and there um, from other players, obviously, but I want to ask you, cause you've talked your fair share of guys. Like what, what's some of the best trash talk you've heard from like anyone not named Joe Mixon or Jamar Chase. And I'm, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but like, does anything else kind of come to mind from a trash talk point of view from this season? Uh, just from this season, yeah. Um, no, I think that's pre predominantly been it, right? I, well, I guess Eli Apple had a, had a little bit, right? Um, oh, that's right. That's right. He, he called Tom Brady the tap-dancing old man. <laughs> yeah, I can't I, believe I, I almost would, forgot about that. I think that would probably be – that would probably rate higher, right? I agree. I don't even know why I forgot about that. Shame on me. That's actually probably one of the best ones this year. I mean, he's probably um, the only one on same, defense – He's probably the only one on defense that has gone there um, in terms of, like, trash talk. Everybody, they, they're pretty buttoned up on that side of the ball in terms of 
Um, yeah, I know. Uh, I'm trying to think. B.J. Hill. I don't call this trash talk, but if you remember, he was walking out of the tunnel in Tampa and said, "We're fairly good on defense," which kind of was him calling out Tom Brady, who was on his radio show earlier that week, saying, "Yeah, Bengals have a fairly good defense." And I mean, I don't think Tom Brady was trying to mock them, but again, like it, it just goes back to the overarching theme. And the point I'm trying to make is there is a chip on their shoulder. There is a level of disrespect that I think the Bengals have seen from other teams. Other, you know, pundits, analysts, because like, you know, when the season was starting, like in the preseason, I think people kind of had Buffalo and KC, Kansas City in one category. And then the Bengals were just a couple tiers below that, even though they beat the Chiefs last year to get to the Super Bowl. They made the Super Bowl and Burrow and Chase had one of the best tandems in all of football when Chase was just a rookie. So I think that's something that they've had all year. The defense is kind of the same thing, like whether it's Tom Brady or other people kind of calling them out or like Tyree Hill, for example, calling out Eli Apple. They thrive on that. It, it fuels that defense. And, you know, as their adage goes, that's why they like to say they got to play us, as coined by Mark Duffner, who, by the way, did, did you even know who Mark Duffner was until you heard about they got to play us? Uh, I did not know that that came from him, no, and that it, what, what his yeah. role specifically was, yeah. I I didn't know until, like, I would, you know, obviously watch, like, their post-game, like, locker room celebrations after wins, and then Zach Taylor would say, what do we say, Duff? And then Duff, with his high-pitched vocal cord, would say, they got to play us! And so I was like, who, who is that guy that keeps saying that? And I did my research, and it was Mark Duffner. So that is their mantra. They got to play us. And they're going to be saying that all throughout the week up until they get to Highmark Stadium. But stay tuned with us. Andrew's going to join me tomorrow. We're going to talk about what makes the Bills' offense so good in the red zone and what makes the Bengals' defense so good in the red zone as we break down that battle. But once again, for myself and Mike Nisla, I'm Muhammad Ahmad. Thanks for joining us. It's a great night.